Well, good morning. It is great to be with you all this morning. Um, it's a humbling experience for sure, especially with some upperclassmen that went to that same private school as I did in the back here. They're probably wondering, what is this kid doing? We knew him back in high school. <laughs> but no, it's truly great to be with, with God's people this morning. It's always encouraging to go to other towns and be reminded uh, we're not on our own back in Little McPherson, that we're not fighting the fight alone, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ fighting this fight together. I've been blessed to get to know um, Pastor Matt through all the different conferences that we go to, Shepherd's Conference, Ironman Summit in Emporia, and some others as well. So I think it's been maybe three or four years now I've got to know him well through those. He, he even came and did one of our Ironman conferences at Cornerstone for us, uh, just a little evening event we do with our men, and I was very, very encouraged by that. If you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me read for us our text this morning, and we'll actually start in chapter 3, verse 16, that very powerful verse right before chapter 4, so first, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then our text this morning. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." Well, I want you to go back with me in time here just one month to the beginning of the year. And while we all come from very different backgrounds, one thing that we all face at the end of December there or sometime in that range is the thought, well, I need to think through this past year. I need to think through my life and what I did, what I accomplished, possibly what I didn't do well. I need to give myself an assessment. Well, this assessment then usually produces desires to change for the next year, and these desires to change we call New Year's resolutions, right? And just to gather us all on the same page this morning, I'll define New Year's resolutions as this. The formal determination to resolve something about your life from the present moving forward for the betterment and longevity of yourself. And my point bringing this up is not that everyone has New Year's resolutions. I realize everyone may have different opinions on them. Some may put a lot of stock in them. Some may think, well, if you're already living a disciplined life, you don't need to make new resolutions. But that's not my point this morning. My, my point is to think through the fact, and I think it's very well known, that 
many people don't ever finish their New Year's resolution, right? A study in 2019 shows that by February, which is right now, 80% of people ditch their New Year's resolutions. There's many studies you can see, they're all a little different, but they all show this similarity that most people don't finish. They don't remain faithful to their New Year's resolution. And my question this morning is, why is that? Not what you think about New Year's resolutions, but why do most of us not finish them? I want to look at this and think through this question this morning with our passage. Why do so many people start something, whatever it may be in life, never to complete it? To be fair, there, there could be different reasons. I'm not talking about every circumstance, right? There, it could be the reason that the New Year's resolution someone made is not a good one. Not all change in life is good, right? Even when you determine to do something different, people can make bad New Year's resolutions. If someone's New Year's resolution was, I treated my children too nice last year, so I'm going to treat them a little worse this year, that's not a good resolution. Or, I'm going to drink less water this year. For most people, that's probably not a good New Year's resolution. And so again, I'm not talking about those instances. I don't think those make up the bulk of the failure we see to finish. And so what is the real reason? Why do we struggle to be faithful to something as simple as that? I want to submit to you this morning, it's because we don't think that the reward is worth the cost. I think that's the answer, not only to something as simple as earthly resolutions, but also to remaining faithful in ministry. And we'll define ministry as we go through this, but that's not just referring to pastors. That's referring to all of us. We all have the ministry as Christians. But again, I think it's because we don't think the reward is worth the cost. We don't believe in our heart that the outcome we, we will receive is worth the effort that we're going to have to put into accomplishing this goal. And I think a major part of what Paul shows us this morning in 2 Timothy 4, specifically by his example, is how to finish the race, how to remain faithful in ministry. If you see verse 7 there, he even says, based off of his example, that he has fought the good fight, he has finished the race, he has kept the faith. And so we want to ask, how did he do that? How did Paul remain faithful to his ministry? We see here Paul made his own resolutions. They weren't American New Year's resolutions, obviously, but, but they were resolutions nonetheless, and he stuck with them all the way to the end. When we ask ourselves, how did he do this? Uh, a Sunday school answer, which it's the right one, it's a good one, would be, well, he did this by the power of God. That's absolutely true. None of us can do anything without the power of God in us. But we don't want to strip away our own responsibility. We don't want to strip our responsibility away to think, well, we'll just be able to coast and everything will be taken care of, right? If God's working in us, it'll, it'll all just pan out. Now, Paul showed us both sides of this coin that, yes, God is absolutely sovereign, but Paul's also responsible to fulfill his ministry, as he tells Timothy. To remain faithful. And so how can we do the same? This is something we desperately need to figure out. If we struggle, and I don't mean maybe necessarily us in here, but those 80% of people that fail resolutions, if, if we struggle not to finish our resolution of, say, not drinking pop for a year, and by February, a month into it, we just can't handle it and we grab one and drink it, how are we going to remain faithful to something so much more difficult 
of living as a Christian, living as light in a dark world. But this is why we need this this morning. How do we face the affliction we do, the darkness we do as Christians, yet persevere? Since we're just parachuting down into a text this morning, it's, it's hard to cover all the background that's needed. That's, by the way, a benefit of um, expository preaching, something you're blessed with here from this pulpit. But because we're just jumping down into this, just a, a small bit of background for you that, that we need to know. Look at chapter 2 with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul here is showing Timothy that he's done the very things that he's commanding Timothy to do. And one piece of background we need to know is is chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul tells Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You can turn back to chapter 4. This is... Not only what Paul's telling Timothy he's going to need to do in the future, one day Timothy will be gone, and before he's gone, he needs to train men to pass the baton off, but that's actually what Paul's doing right now. The book of 2 Timothy is a very personal book between Paul and Timothy. He knows he's reached the end of his life. He's about to die, which we'll actually see here in a bit, and this is what Paul's doing. He's giving this final handoff of the baton to Timothy. So in light of that very, very small bit of background, there are four things I want you to see this morning. And I apologize, I was made aware when I came here, I guess y'all are used to the projector. I didn't bring any points up there. I I told a couple guys I'm kind of a dinosaur for my age when it comes to technology. I'm not even sure if I could have built a PowerPoint for you, but I will try to be very clear with these four points in case you want to write those down. The first thing we need to see, if we want to remain faithful in ministry, is we need to see the charge. This is verse 1 and 2. We need to see this charge that Paul gives to Timothy. This is the third time Paul has used this phrase, I charge you. He used it in 1 Timothy 5.21. He used it in 1 Timothy 6.13. This is a solemn charge. If you are using the ESV like me, we don't see that word solemn there. Other translations has this. Has this. But this is a, a forceful, serious, dignified charge. It's solemn. It's going to be heavy. Paul's telling Timothy, whatever I'm about to say, brace yourself. This is a big deal. Paul's appeal here exceeds all previous charges in solemnity, intensity, and urgency. Again, this is the third time he's used it, and this is the most forceful. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Now that Christ Jesus, we're told in Acts 10.42, is the one who's appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. It explicitly tells us that, Acts 10.42. This is a tall order. Paul's telling Timothy, the life you live, the ministry that you need to fulfill and remain faithful to, this is in light of this great God. Again, this is a tall order, and this is the same for us as well. Our ministry is in light of God watching. This is a unique passage in that you can read it backwards, and it still uh, makes sense. You can read this forwards or backwards. The reason is because Paul uses so many conjunctions throughout the passage. And I only bring that up because I want you to see this. Everything Paul's charging Timothy to do is in light of the fact Paul has already done it. And you'll, you'll see that if you read the, the passage backwards. 
Paul says that I charge you in the presence of God to do the same thing that I've done. I've fought the good fight with God watching. I've finished the race now. I've kept the faith with God watching and his son, the one that's coming to rule and reign. This isn't new information to Timothy either. Paul has told him this many times. This is just one more reminder. Again, at the end of Paul's life, just think, if, if we're at the end of our life, I imagine the things that are going to start becoming more important to us are not only the simple things, but the simple things we want all of the loved ones we have to see. And we're going to remind them of those things before we're gone, and that's exactly what Paul is doing in 2 Timothy. There's nothing new Paul's telling Timothy. Timothy didn't know that he's supposed to try to remain faithful to ministry. He's known that his whole life. He's followed Paul most of his life. So these are just reminders, but they are good reminders for us as well. And if we want to remain faithful to ministry, we have to know what specifically we need to remain faithful to. And the driving force that this text tells us that we are to remain faithful to is God's word. God's word is what Paul remained faithful to and is commanding Timothy to do the same. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus by his appearing to, verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Now, what word is Timothy supposed to preach? Well, that's why I read chapter 3, verse 16. That's kind of the launch pad for, for chapter 4. The word Timothy is to be faithful to and preach is that breathed out word that is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's the word that we all are to remain faithful to. This is the only solution to the problems in life. God's word is indispensable. One of my favorite things about guest preaching is that I can come in and do something that your pastors can't do, and I'm sure they're all very nervous now. Don't worry, it's not bad. It's good. But humble men don't praise themselves, so your pastors aren't ever going to stand up here and praise themselves, but I can come in and praise them. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. And I'm the stranger here. But I do exhort you all to thank God and praise God regularly for your elders who remain faithful to the Word of God, who labor week in and week out, not because it's easy, not because they know it'll gain them praise, it often won't. Why do they labor week in and week out? For you, with the word of God, because they know that's the solution. That's what must be remained faithful to, to have any chance of us remaining or, or living a faithful life in ministry. I praise God for the, the elders and pastors at our church who do the same. We are all benefited by men who do that, who oversee us, who care for us in light of the word of God. Praise God for the men here that do that as well. Got to know a few of them this morning and then, of course, known Matt for a while as well. There was a, a story of a local pastor uh, in McPherson. We, got, we have tons of churches in McPherson. I'm sure you do as well. Um, so a pastor of a church there, I was told by someone else, uh, preached a sermon, and this is normal. This is normal for that pulpit. And the, the whole sermon was based upon a thought he had that popped in his mind when he walked into the grocery store. So he had a large introduction about this thought, the feeling that popped in his mind, and, and then finished maybe with another 15, 20 minutes expositing his thought that he had in the grocery store. No Bible involved, no 
word of God involved. And my question is, and we know that sort of thing happens often, but how does that benefit anyone? Who is changed by that word? Not only justified, but even someone that's a Christian, how, how would they be sanctified from stories in our life? Again, that's why we want to thank God for the, the pastors even that, that fill this pulpit for you week in and week out. It's easier to tell stories about when you walked in the grocery store because that doesn't take very much prep time. They don't do that, and there's a reason. It's because they love the Word of God and they're, they're faithful to it. They're convicted that it's what can change lives through the power of God, of course. Nothing else can take the place of the Word of God, and so... We are to preach this word. What does preach mean? What means to herald? Sure, you know that. Herald the word. That is to proclaim or announce. We sing this song uh, probably every Christmas. Hark the herald angels sing. What does that herald angel sing? Glory to the newborn king. That angel didn't come and ask questions. That angel wasn't asking for discussion. The angel came and said, I'm the herald angel. Here's the message. You must listen. We, we know this from movies, we've, older movies we've seen or older books we've read. What does the herald do when he comes into town riding on a horse or whatever it may be? He says, hear ye, hear ye, a message from the king. Again, there's no discussion. There's no question. He's coming and saying, this is what the king says, and you're obligated to listen. He doesn't ask people to listen. Why? Because this is the king's words. It's not the herald's words. It's not the delivery boy's words. God's words. And Paul tells Timothy to remain faithful to this, to preach this. We know this idea of, of heralding rubs many people the wrong way in our day and age. But this is something nonetheless we must remain faithful to. Paul has reminded Timothy many times before how precious this deposit of God's word is that we have. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This truth that the word of God is what changes people, not us as mere men, but God's word is placed right in front of us preachers, if you want to call us that, ministers, whatever it is, week in and week out. I'm sure that you can relate to this as well, but if you're teaching a lesson somewhere, preaching a sermon, whatever it may be, and, and you preach one and you think, I think that went pretty well. If anyone's going to be helped or benefited, it's probably from that sermon, and then it's just crickets for the next couple days, right? No, one, Apparently, it didn't help anyone. Then the next week or whatever it is, you teach or preach something else, and after that, you're just mortified. You just want to be done, go find a different job and leave town so no one sees you again. And five people come up and say that it's life-changing what you just said. And we think, how, how is this? That was terrible from a human standpoint. We know why this is. It's because the word of God is what's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces our bones and our marrow and discerns the thoughts and, thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's why God's word is what has the power, not us. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, preach this word. Brothers and sisters, are you dedicated to the ministry of this word? Week in and week out. Not only Sunday mornings when the word's being proclaimed from the pulpit, the formal preaching of the word, but 
all the other ministries you have, Bible studies, and even discipling one another. Again, your ministry as a Christian. We must remain faithful to this word. That was the first of five commands that compose this charge. The other four are in light of this main charge to preach the word. I'll quickly run through those. This starts in verse 2 here. We looked at preach the word. Then Paul says, be ready in season and out of season. That is when the sun's shining and when the sun is darkened. When people are flocking in and when people are, are not to be found anywhere. When friends and family have good relationships with you or when friends and family want nothing to do with you. Be ready in season and out of season. Paul says, reprove, that is expose what is false and convict with the truth. Rebuke, that is, when necessary, express sharp disapproval and exhort. Urge or encourage someone unto something. Exhort them. Encourage them. These, all are, or these are all to be done with complete patience and teaching. And oh, if that just said with some patience or with a little bit of patience sometimes, but no, with complete patience. I think some versions even say with all patience. This must be done all the time. We can't use the word to harm people, to jab people. This is to be in their benefit. And this is the word, this is the charge which we must see. So that first point was see the charge. Number two, understand the concern. Or to understand the concern. This is verses three and four. Paul says, for the time is coming when they will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, in context, what's the opposite of these myths? What's the antagonist? Well, it's chapter 3, verse 16, right? It's that God-breathed word that is profitable for all these things. And that's what is to be remained faithful to. This has been a warning throughout all the pastoral epistles. Paul has warned Timothy many times of not only false teachers, but people that endure the false teaching, who love the false teaching. 1 Timothy 1.4, 1 Timothy 4.7, Titus 1.14, Paul has warned Timothy in all these places and more. These are people that won't endure sound teaching. Some versions say sound doctrine, and if you have ESV, you'll see a little footnote there that says healthy teaching or healthy doctrine. That's the idea of sound doctrine. It's good for you. It's, it's good for you to eat. It's healthy. Some people don't like that sort of food. They don't like God's word. It doesn't tickle the scratch that they have. See, the root problem of the rejection of sound teaching and wandering off into myths, it's not merely intellectual. It's not just mere facts, but it's emotional. It's passions-based. It's internal. You see, these people have an itch and it has to be scratched, just, just like when your back scratches and you can hardly handle it. You can't reach it, and, and it's driving you nuts. These people have an internal itch, and it's scratched through their ears, and they can't handle it, and they need to hear words that scratch it. Words like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Words like, if you just live your life or give your life to Jesus, he'll make you or make all your problems disappear. Or if you just give your life to Jesus, he wants you to be uh, healthy, wealthy, and, and happy and rich, right? 
These are all quotes. They're not quotes from Scripture. These are the phrases that tickle people's scratch that they have. They're passionate about myths. They're passionate about receiving entertainment, about emotional feelings. See, it doesn't feel good to hear a 45, 55-minute sermon on how we're sinful and we need something that we can't produce on our own, right? The, the biblical gospel message. We aren't good enough. We don't have what we need. We need something. We need a substitute, right? We need Christ. People don't like hearing that message. One, one commentator said, don't worry if your church is small. Most good churches are small churches. Now I get there's exceptions. But his point is, don't worry that the church down the road has 40,000 people that attend every week. They may just be preaching messages that scratch people's itch, an itch that hates the word of God. So these are passions-based. That's one thing that we need to see. It's important for us to even see regarding remaining faithful in ministry. It's not just about intellectual things or facts. It's about our passions as well. One commentator said, these nominal Christians, they flock to preachers who offer them God's blessing apart from his forgiveness, his salvation apart from their repentance. Their goal is that men preach to suit their own passions, and under those conditions, people will dictate what men preach rather than God dictating it by his word. One thing that didn't have to used to be said 50 years ago, let's say, but does need to be said now, probably especially to my generation, maybe not necessarily an older crowd, but we need to be careful with the internet. And I mean specifically in light of this with even internet preachers, but not only just internet preachers, because there's great internet preachers and there's bad ones, but the idea that if, if we get all of our counsel, if the men we look up to are men that we know, but they don't know us at all, they don't know all the details of our life, they can't oversee us and care for us and disciple us, if that's where we get all of our information, it's a dangerous place to be. Why? Because you can press the pause button anytime you want on that. You'll listen to sermons that, that scratch whatever itch you have. And the moment you don't like hearing something, you'll just turn it off and go to the next one. See, that's different than the local church. The local church, if you don't like something, you're either going to have to make a big scene and get up and walk out, which will be more embarrassing, or you'll have many brothers and sisters in Christ that come around you that know you, they know your life circumstances, and they know the Word of God, and they can take the Word of God and apply that to you. They can disciple you, hold you accountable. We're not supposed to be in the position where we can turn on and off God's Word into our lives when we want to. It's not how God has set this up. We need to be accountable to brothers and sisters in Christ who hold us to this charge to preach the Word and to love this word as well. So again, we must understand the concern. We must not have a, an itch that is one that is against or contrary to God's truth, but, but we must have a different kind of itch, an, an itch that loves to hear the pure word of God. That every time your preacher here and your pastors here teach you and preach to you, you love. It's satisfying because you love God's word. That is one thing that will help us remain faithful in ministry. Hopefully we see throughout this sermon more and more. But this is about desires. This is about passions, even thinking through remaining faithful in ministry. So we must understand the concern. Number three, we must follow the counsel. 
We must follow the counsel. This is verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul says, as for you, that is in contrast to those that wander off into myths. Always be sober-minded, that is be, be temperate, be self-controlled. That's what this word or phrase sober-minded means. See, these crowds, these people, they're possessed by something other than the Holy Spirit. We as Christians, we're, we're not to be filled with anything else. You know that from Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, that leads to debauchery, but be filled with something else. Be filled with the Spirit. This will cause us to be sober-minded, to be alert, ready, and, and self-controlled. Paul uses this another time, this idea of sober-minded, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8, talking about Christ's return. And he's saying, don't be caught not being sober-minded when Christ returns. Be caught sober. Not just referring to, to strong drink. No, not at all. Talking about your whole life. Be caught self-controlled in life. Be caught serving the Lord when Christ returns. Paul says, be sober when he returns. This is what he's calling Timothy to do right now. Be sober-minded. He says, endure hardship or suffering, some versions will say. This is an ongoing theme throughout the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, even Titus. I think you guys have been in that a little bit recently. Endure this hardship that will come. Or chapter 1, verse 8 of 2 Timothy here. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 9. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. See, this is a reoccurring theme. Affliction for a Christian is like sickness to a human. It's unavoidable. Because of a sin-filled world, you're not going to be able to avoid it. Every human in this room has been touched by or affected by sickness at one time or another. None of us have avoided it, no matter how young or old we are. This is the same with affliction for a Christian. The Bible doesn't ever say to avoid it, in fact, kind of a dangerous place to be when you are trying to avoid affliction as a Christian. But it says quite the opposite. Chapter 3, verse 12, just a little bit above our passage. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will what? Will be persecuted. This is normal to the Christian. And if you stand on the word of God graciously yet unequivocally, it will come at a cost. There may be family tension, there may be hatred, there may be marital problems, maybe verbal persecution at work, could be one month or more in jail, as we've seen some brothers here in the last couple of years facing that in other places. We're not to necessarily avoid this, we're not to spend our energy trying to avoid it, we're to try to understand biblically how to handle it well, how do we suffer well in these things that will come. As you know, Paul, through all of his epistles, makes that a major theme, helping us think through how to endure suffering well as a believer in Christ. And we wouldn't want to miss 
a little, a little bit of background as well, where Paul is writing this from, right? He's writing this from prison, his, many say his second Roman imprisonment. He's in jail because of his sufferings and persecutions, because of the message that he preached that the world hated. And even in that, even in prison, Paul's telling Timothy, this will come, but understand how to handle it well. Next, Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. It's indisputable that a minister of God is to preach to the people of God. But an overlapping part of his job description is to to preach to the world as well. Luke 19.10, this is the, the Savior that we serve, whom we follow. And it says this, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is not just teaching his disciples. He's not just um, gain, or, or teaching his disciples more and more information about him so that they may know more and more. He's also preaching to the lost, the gospel message that is used to change lives. And we as his ambassadors, we're his followers. We must do the same. We must be preaching to the lost so that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to change the hearts of lost sinners. And so Paul's telling Timothy, do this. Remember, again, these aren't new things, but he's reminding Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Now, the distinction here is important. Paul doesn't say, go be an evangelist or have the title of an evangelist. He says, do the work of an evangelist. The reason I bring that up is lest anyone tries to hide behind what they think may be a lack of giftedness or They've taken a spiritual gift test, and evangelism didn't rank very high on that test. Not that I'm recommending those tests, but it's easy to think, well, I'm not, I must not be very good at that. This paper says I'm not, so I'm not really going to do that. I'm going to let other people do that that are much better. But Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't give that loophole. He says, do the work of an evangelist. This is what we're all to do. Again, this is part of our ministry as Christians. The word ministry, both to the people of God and to those who are not saved, to the lost. The next little qualifying phrase here, Paul says, is fulfill your ministry. This ends verse 5. Fulfill your ministry. It's said another way, diligently complete the task at hand, all the way to the very end. Leave it all on the court. Play hard till the buzzer goes off. Remember, Paul in verse 7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished that race. And this is the encouragement and reminder to do the same. Fulfill your ministry. There's a very concerning sentiment in Christianity that I've seen, I guess, in my short adult life here. And I find it, I find it very dangerous and harmful. I don't know what to call it except a self-deprecating false humility. And what I mean by that is the idea that some people have that we're just supposed to live thinking we're, we're never doing the right things. We're, we're never reading enough, never praying enough. And by the way, those things are true. We're not doing those things enough. But I mean the, the idea behind it or the demeanor behind it. As if you ask someone how they're doing and the answer is just always, well, I'm just not living how I should, preacher. I'm not, not doing well. I'm not talking about times in life that are up and down. I'm talking about that general idea that some people almost think is this holy, pious thing to say, right? I'm just not, not doing what I should, but I don't know how to reconcile that with Scripture. I don't know how to reconcile that with Paul telling Timothy, fulfill your ministry. 
We're not talking about pride here at all. Christians always must be humble, right? We're not talking about that. We're not talking about boasting in ourself at all. But we are talking about fighting the good fight, the responsibility we have to remain faithful. And as Paul commands Timothy to do this, we need to take application from this as well. We're to fulfill our ministry as well. This isn't a command that can't be done. This isn't an impossible thing we're being asked to do. This is a command that can and must be done. You must fulfill your ministry. You can remain faithful to the end. In fact, you must. Not only do we have great examples of that throughout Scripture, listen to 1 Corinthians 4.2. This is Paul talking as well. 1 Corinthians 4.2, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. It's required. And so we're looking at how do we do this. We're not saying it's easy. Is it hard? Of course. Is it grueling? Yes. Does it take great effort and control? Absolutely. But nonetheless, this is a command that we must do. We, we must remain faithful. One pastor we, we had many years ago always said this. He said, what the Lord orders, he pays for. And if he orders a ministry to be fulfilled, he'll pay for it. Paul tells us how he accomplished it, lest you think I'm, I'm saying, well, we just need to grunt out more effort and accomplish it ourselves. Absolutely not. We can't do that. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that is God's, that powerfully works within me. You know, if you know the Apostle Paul's writing as well, that you'll constantly hear him talking about his struggle, his effort, his fight. He worked harder than them all, he says, but he never boasts in his work. He knows it's only by the power of God that he can do these things. All praise and glory Paul ever gives is always to God. But both these things must be present. Both these things must be true. Lastly, this is number four, we must consider the reward. Consider the reward, verse 6 through 8. In verse 6, Paul gives the imagery of his death being very soon here. So verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This time of departure or being poured out is the idea of a large ship that was tied up in port and is now being loosed and sent off to sea. That's the life of Paul. He's been where he's supposed to be. He's been in port, but the end of his life is near and he will be sent off. He will be dying in short order. And it's in light of this that he's encouraging Timothy to do all of these same things. Verse 7, Paul summarizes his whole life in these three simple phrases. We've looked at these already, but they would have probably been read differently. They would have been read, the good fight I fought, the race I finished, the faith I kept. And what is this good fight? What is this course that Paul kept? Well, about 10 years earlier in Acts chapter 20, he tells us this, Acts 20 verse 24. Again, a decade earlier, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's 10 years prior, Paul is praying and hoping that he finishes and he remains faithful. And now in 2 Timothy, he's saying, I have done that. 
only by the power of God, but, but I have finished the race. See, Paul's not boasting here. Again, he's referring to the excellence of the cause. When he says, I fought the good fight, he's not saying that the, the fought, I'm sorry, the fight that I fought, I did a very good job. He's not saying that. He's saying the, the fight that I fought, it's a fight worth fighting for. It's a good cause to be a part of. We want to see that. It's referring to the cause of God, not just Paul's actions. And during Paul's ministry, he said many, many times, I want to finish that course well. We just looked at one in Acts chapter 20. He says it also in Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul can look back over his life and say, I did that. I, I remained faithful to the end. Because of this, in verse 8, Paul says, In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Here's the reward that Paul's considering. That was our fourth point. Consider the reward. That's going to help us remain faithful by considering the reward. And what is that? He says it's the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me or him, Paul's saying, on that day. This is a symbolic reward, this crown of righteousness. This is the final perfected righteousness of Christ completed in us on that day. In our glorification, that the final completed righteousness. We don't have time to dig into this. I wish we did. The justification, sanctification, and glorification. Are we righteous right now as believers? Absolutely. If you've been justified, you've been declared righteous by the, the righteousness of Christ. Are we completely righteous? Well, no, we're being made more and more righteous. We're being made holy sanctification. This crown, I think, is referring to glorification, the completed righteousness in us from Christ. On that day when we are removed from this earth, removed from all the perils of sin, this is what Paul longs for. This is that reward that he had his eyes on the whole time he was in fighting the fight in his life. And because he kept his eyes fixed on that prize, he was able to finish this race well. But lest we think that we couldn't ever attain this, lest we think this is some supernatural apostolic gift that Paul had that he could finish his race, he says specifically that's not the case. Look at Verse 8, he says, it'll be awarded to me on that day, and not only to me, though, but also all who have loved his appearing, as opposed to those who many New Testament writers warned about, who were caught doing evil at the Lord's return. They weren't sober-minded. These people, us, Paul, and, and those who love Christ and who love his appearing, those will be awarded the crown of righteousness. Some versions say who have longed for his appearing. I don't think this is referring to just the idea that when Christ returns, at that moment we're saying, oh, we're so glad he's back. I think it's referring to the life pattern of a Christian. Someone who loves Christ and has loved, it says has loved in the past throughout their whole life, the thought of the appearing of Christ. They long for this. They view this as the reward that all else falls in comparison or fails in comparison to. So again, we long for Christ. That's how we 
consider this reward? How do we remain faithful to the end? Well, we see here we long for Christ. See, the source of endurance is not just grim determination. It's not just mere hard work, but a love for God that considers him to be more value than anything else in life. That's how we remain faithful. We consider the reward. We sing about this all the time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Something happens, right? The things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see that imagery of considering the reward, keeping your eyes fixed on that. And even things that seem major in life, afflictions, circumstances, disease, friendships being broken, those large earthly things will grow strangely, strangely dim in the light of keeping Christ as the focal point, as our reward, as the one that we love. See, we can't remain faithful to something we don't love, to something that you aren't convinced is worth the reward. Again, we're not talking about willpower here. Apparently, grim determination gets you to February, at least 80% of us. But we need something more. We need something else. And that is this, considering the reward, a love for Christ. We want to remain faithful. We need to understand that the source of endurance is a love for God. A love for God that looks to the reward and says, I want that reward. Part of that being, I want God to be glorified in my life. And nothing's going to stand in the way of that. Let me finish off by just reading a few passages. Listen to how these men, these are some examples of ours. Listen to how these men remained faithful in their ministry. And you'll notice it's passions-based. It's a, it's a love-based endurance or faithfulness. Romans 8.18, this is Paul. How did Paul remain faithful? He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I always think of the song I just quoted, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, when I hear that passage. All the sufferings of the present time that he faced, which were major sufferings, Nothing compared to the glory of Christ. That's how Paul remained faithful. How did Moses remain faithful? Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. And lastly, This is not just a man, this is the God-man, Jesus Christ. How did Jesus in his human state persevere? How did he remain faithful? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, notice even that with with Christ himself is passions-based. It's love-based. The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, this is who we need to look to. Christ supremely, praise the Lord, we have other great examples of faithful men and women in Scripture that have endured and remained faithful. But those aren't an ultimate thing we can look to. Let us look to Christ. Let us View him and that very thing as the reward to consider that all other things may grow strangely dim, that we may not be affected and tripped up by those things in life. 
but that by having and keeping our eyes upon him, looking to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we may remain faithful in all of our different ministries that we have. Let us treasure him, that is Christ. Let us treasure him above all other things. Let's pray to him now that by his power, he would help us and cause us to remain faithful. Father, we come to you this morning. So grateful to be here, to be together with with your people. Thank you for gathering us together in your grace. Causing us to be born again to a living hope. Causing us to love the things of you. Encouraging one another, not only by singing earlier, but scripture being read. By praises being offered to you. Thank you for this. Cause us by your power to to remain faithful in ministry. We know we can't do this on our own. There's no human willpower or determination we have that could ever cause us to remain faithful all the way to the end. Thank you for the examples that you've given us in Scripture, most of all the example of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise him this morning. Thank you for his perfect life and his perfect death, that we may not only be forgiven of that which we could never pay the penalty for, but we gain something we could have never ever attained ourselves, and that is his righteousness. Thank you for this. We praise you. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.